Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, What's New in the Treatment of Lung Cancer, and this is part one of a two-part series on Living with Lung Cancer. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations as well as many other lung cancer organizations, and it really is because of their support of this program and your support um, and your interest in the program, we have over 486 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, so from rural and urban and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, New Zealand, Taiwan, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And um, I really want to thank all of you for spending this next hour with us. Today's program is supported by the Celgene Corporation and Ethicon part of the Johnson & Johnson family of companies, and I really want to thank them for their support as well. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today. I believe it's the best of the best, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Paul Pack. Dr. Pack is Clinical Director, Thoracic Oncology Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Pack is going to present an overview of the treatment of lung cancer, including current standard of care, chemotherapy and targeted cancer therapies, and new treatment approaches. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Pack. Hello, and good afternoon, everyone. And for those who are not in this time zone, good morning, uh, or good evening, for that matter. Uh, so there are a few different things that I'm going to touch upon, as Dr. Mesner had uh, noted. The first is going to be a general overview, just so that we can have a framework uh, to hang our hats on for some of the other discussions that my colleagues will have and some of that I'll talk about. Um, and we're going to talk about some of the standard of care uh, options that are there for our patients living with lung cancer as that baseline. Uh, some of this we'll talk about next, uh, chemotherapy, some targeted approaches, and uh, a topic that, of course, has gotten a lot of uh, buzz over the past few years, immunotherapy. And then I'll talk a little bit about new treatment approaches. Some of this will dovetail into my colleague, Dr. Lee's talk, so I won't, I won't spend too much time on that. Um, so in terms of how I like to frame things at the beginning, it's probably most useful to talk about things still when it comes to stages of diagnosis. And so I'll run through what the standard of care looks like for patients who have stage one to stage four lung cancer. And the first way we typically think about things or whether or not these lung cancers are things that we're going to be able to help get rid of for you. And, and those encompass stage one to stage three disease. For those of our patients who have very small uh, tumors in their lungs or a, a little bit of spread maybe to a regional lymph node, this would be stage one to stage two disease. Surgery really is the standard of care for these folks. And so it's important to have a consultation uh, right at the beginning with a thoracic surgeon, someone who really has done a lot of these procedures, has a lot of outcomes. We know that that matters a great deal when it comes to trying to get as much benefit as possible. Uh, and hopefully when you do well with your surgery, you might come and meet with a medical oncologist to talk about the role of some adjuvant or post-operative chemotherapy to try to boost the odds that uh, you've beaten this at the end of the day. Uh, for stage three patients, we actually have uh, some new standard of care the, uh, treatments that have come into play over the past year. These are our patients who have uh, primary lung tumors that are very big, might involve another separate lobe on the same side, uh, or may have gone a little bit further in terms of uh, regional lymph node involvement. And, and here, the decision uh, to try to get rid of this rests on our thoracic surgeons and on our radio, radiation oncologists to try to figure out which uh, modality is really going to be the best uh, for you in terms of maintaining quality of life while offering, I think, every chance to try to get rid of this. Here, chemotherapy almost always is a part of the treatment option either before or after uh, surgery or radiation or in conjunction with radiation therapy together. And the newest thing that we have to offer patients who have stage three disease who've gotten a combination of chemotherapy and radiation together is uh, a drug called Derivalumab or immunotherapy that's given afterwards for a year. 
which we've sh we've shown in a recent clinical trial helps to improve essentially the cure rate, the overall survival for patients uh, who have stage 3 disease who have gotten chemotherapy together with radiation therapy. And this was really a big uh, push forward because that field had been relatively stagnant in terms of our discoveries over the past uh, 15 years. Uh, the last thing I want to touch on is our patients who have stage 4 uh, disease. And here uh, we've seen the most gains over the past uh, five years. Um, the best way to think about management here is that we've gotten so good at this that we have lots and lots of initial testing that we have to do first before we can pick and choose what the best treatment option is going to be for you. We have that many uh, potential options where it's no longer the case where everything gets the same thing. And so here we have our molecular testing that rests on things like sequencing, uh, if that sounds familiar to find specific targets that might be uh, aberrant in uh, your specific cancer to find a targeted therapy that might be the right match. We also have another uh, test for something called PDL1, which is the protein that the cancer cell co-ops uh, to try to hide itself from the immune system. And this uh, provides a way for us to figure out whether or not you might be able to get away with just getting immunotherapy by itself without any chemo. Um, to start off with. Uh, and those are the initial rounds of tests. It's very important at the time of diagnosis to have this testing uh, done as quickly as possible so we can make that informed decision about the, what the right treatment uh, modality is going to be right off the bat. Uh, there's some other things that we can talk about uh, later on, I think tumor mutation burden is something that you might have heard about. I think that is something we can discuss um, during the discussion part just because the, there are no specific guidelines about that. So it really is a discussion more than any kind of mandate that we provide. And here, I think we now have dovetailed to talk about some of the targeted and chemotherapy uh, approaches and immunotherapy approaches. Really, things have shifted quite a bit uh, where uh, immunotherapy in particular, which used to be reserved uh, for patients uh, who were uh, later in their course of therapy, has moved up for nearly everyone right at the beginning based on the readout of newer trials over the past year so that immunotherapy firmly is uh, part of the standard of care for most of our patients now who are diagnosed with uh, advanced lung cancer. Uh, and of course, there are, for those of you uh, whose cancers bear uh, different um, changes in specific genes like EGFR, ALK, RET, ROS1, uh, these may sound familiar. There is a match to targeted therapy that we can offer you, uh, which we usually give right at the beginning because they're so effective and so well tolerated um, as, as the first line of, of therapy. Uh, the last thing I want to touch on um, is new treatment approaches. Um, and the reason uh, why I think we can talk about this is because of the advances that we've made in immunotherapy. And we talk about new treatment approaches, but uh, they've really become our, our standard of care in a very short period of time. Uh, and so uh, their newness is still with us, uh, and we're still sort of adopting very quickly to put these into practice uh, across the country as sort of the regular ways that we end up uh, recommending treatments for folks. Uh, we have made advances in targeted therapies as well. We've identified new targets over the past five years, uh, and we've identified new drugs. I think the most uh, promising and relevant uh, has been the FDA approval of a drug called Orlatinum. Now, about three weeks ago, uh, this uh, coming Friday, which is really the fifth ALK inhibitor approved. So we now have five targeted therapy drugs for patients with ALK rearranged lung cancer. And so our ability to find newer and better drugs really continues uh, to move forward in a pretty short period of time. It's only been about a decade since we discovered uh, that specific alteration and less so for some of these newer alterations. And I think the, the last thing uh, that I want to mention is some additional hope and promise, again, looping back to our early stage patients, because we have done uh, initial trial work to try to see whether or not immunotherapy might be able to become a standard of part of care for folks who have stage 1 uh, to 2 disease. And it looks like uh, this is pretty promising. There have been trial readouts showing that this works uh, by itself. And now we're working on trying to figure out what the best combination might be uh, to try to really boost uh, uh, cure rates uh, for patients who have early stage disease in ways that we've not been able to over the past 15 to 20 uh, years. I want to stop here. I think I've taken my allotment of time and I'll move on. I'll let Bob Lee move on to the next topic. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Pack. That was really wonderful, Dr. Pack. That was just a, a wonderful introduction to the call and lots of good information. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Bob Lee. Dr. Lee is attending Medical Oncologist, Thoracic Oncology Service, Developmental Therapeutic Center, Memorial Sloan Kettering's 
Cancer Center, and Dr. Lee will address the role of precision medicine in informing treatment choice options, how clinical trials contribute to your treatment choices, and managing side effects, symptoms, and discomfort and pain. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lee. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thank you, Cancer Care, for this opportunity to share with everyone our um, latest findings in lung cancer research and how to uh, translate that to better patient care. So just building on, uh, upon Dr. Pike's excellent summary uh, of lung cancer advances, uh, I'd like to just spend a few minutes talking about uh, precision medicine. So precision medicine is, is really giving the right treatment uh, to the right patient at the right time. And, and the current state of the art is really studying uh, several biomarkers uh, from the tumor factor, so that's the cancer itself, uh, and also from patient factors uh, in regards to the, uh, the patient's uh, well-being overall. So let's focus on tumor factors. Generally, we like to get a piece of the uh, tumor tissue and study its molecular uh, characteristics. And largely, this is genomics and proteomics at the moment. Genomics is the study of genes. And uh, in lung cancer, mutation testing has, has been a standard of care um, uh, for the last uh, decade or so. And, and uh, the initial discovery is a gene called EGFR that has led to a range of targeted therapies, precision therapies targeting EGFR, switching off that oncogene uh, on the cell level and then uh, rendering the uh, cancer cell death, uh, which has been proven to work better than chemotherapy. And following that story, we have a range of other oncogenes that are driving cancer growth, and by finding them, we can uh, treat them with specific inhibitors to switch off that gene product and the function of that gene and to uh, let the uh, cancer cells die. So that includes ALK fusions, ROS fusions, now um, other mutations including BRAF, including HER2, uh, and we are now moving into RED fusions and hopefully KRAS mutations uh, in the future as well. So, um, and and then there are rarer uh, alterations being discovered through extended uh, gene sequencing strategies that uh, we have now drugs that could actually match um, those mutations uh, uh, to render a response or shrinkage of the tumor and, and uh, make the patient's life better. So uh, this is genomics. Uh, mutation testing used to be uh, one gene at a time, but now we have developed new technologies, new tools called, uh, now classified as next generation sequencing or NGS. And those are various different assays and platforms and different uh, strategies through what we call DNA enrichment. Um, and, uh, but by and large, they look at multiple genes at the same time in one go. And that has now become the standard of care in the um, treatment of lung cancer, and, and it's now becoming more and more available. But we do need uh, tumor tissue, and therefore the biopsy of tumor tissue is uh, extremely important. Through next-generation sequencing, we can also develop not only single-gene mutation testing to guide precision-targeted therapies, uh, those pills that I talked about, but also um, tumor mutational burden, which is now emerging as a new biomarker for immunotherapy. Those with high tumor mutational burden, or TMB, uh, have a better chance of responding to uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, that Dr. Pike had talked about. So this is um, still a constant evolution, and the technologies will continue to improve uh, and hopefully will benefit more patients. Now, on the protein side, uh, protein is a product of the gene, and there are various targets that are being developed. The most commonly used one is called PDL1. That's also an immune marker on the tumor uh, to predict the likelihood of benefit from certain immunotherapies. So PDL1 is now also a routine, a, a new standard in lung cancer diagnostics, which can guide precision treatments using immunotherapy. Uh, and uh, so the TMB is on the genetic level, the PDL1 on the protein level. 
those are both done on tissue sample and therefore biopsies are important. Other novel biomarkers including DLL3 uh, as a marker in small cell lung cancer that may uh, respond to certain DLL3 antibody drug conjugates or other targeted therapies are still being developed in clinical trials. So moving away from the tissue, uh, we now can map out the genetics of the cancer through plasma or blood. So this is so-called a liquid biopsy. And by taking tubes of blood, we can now do next-generation sequencing of circulating DNA fragments that are shed from the cancer into the circulation to um, find those drivers that uh, we discussed and help guide uh, precision therapies uh, using a blood test. So this is really the at the cutting edge of lung cancer research. And then in the future, hopefully we will uncover more about patient factors. Uh, at the moment, we use very crude uh, tools such as assessing performance status and patient's uh, history and tolerability for certain uh, therapies, but in the future, perhaps inflammatory markers and other markers of tumor microenvironment could be developed. So all those are in the realm of clinical trials, and we are now beginning to see uh, the fruits of those research findings. So for example, NTREC fusions are extremely rare. It's about half a percent incidence across multiple tumor types, but yet through next generation sequencing of tumors, one could match patients onto highly effective NTREC inhibitors, including larotrectinib, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine by my colleague Alex Drillin and others, um, uh, which had is still in clinical trials, but uh, we are seeing, as reported in that paper, dramatic responses across uh, different tumor types, including lung cancers. HER2 amplification in lung cancers has no FDA-approved drug at the moment, yet using breast cancer drugs such as TDM1 or adotrastuzumab intensive, we are seeing also responses on clinical trials that have been presented and published in ASCO and, and, uh, and journals. So um, these are really the um, uh, clinical trials in still in the research realm be, uh, becoming a reality in terms of benefiting patients and, and making patients' lives better. And we hope to accelerate this uh, so that the research can uh, impact on more lives. Now, uh, finally, just a touch on the management of side effects and uh, symptoms such as pain. Do talk to your doctors because this is a, um, a complex topic. Each drug has a different range, uh, profile of side effects, including skin rash, diarrhea, uh, uh, gut disturbance with nausea, vomiting, and, and other things. But uh, most side effects can be well managed, if, especially if intervened early. Immune therapies have all kinds of immune-related side effects that are totally different to chemotherapy side effects or targeted therapy side effects, and that could be effectively managed by just dampening down the immune system when it's overactive and, and perhaps injuring your own organs such as pneumonitis, colitis, hepatitis, and so forth. But those can be readily treated if intervened early. And, um, and lastly, cancer pain, it needs to be managed because, uh, and do not just put up with pain because you're a stoic character and you can put up with a lot. Uh, it's important to have pain under control and there are a variety of medicines that could help with pain from using the World Health Organization ladder of analgesia. We can move from simple analgesics, acetaminophen, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to weak opioids, including codeine, tramadol, and then to strong opioids, including morphine, oxycodone, and so forth. And that, in a stepwise manner, cancer pain can be managed effectively. And the uh, there is an abuse of uh, opioid out there in the general community in the non-cancer uh, setting. Uh, however, in patients with metastatic cancer suffering from cancer pain, uh, this is where opioids should be used. Uh, and, and certainly in this setting, there is no addiction concern because the, the the drugs are used to treat pain, not to, not to induce a high. So it's pharmacologically working very differently um, to the non-cancer setting. So um, please do talk to your doctor, your oncologist, your physician, and have all those symptoms under control. Thank you.
Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Lee, and thank you also for your calling out for people to get to be in touch with their physicians around their discomfort and pain and side effect management that's so important uh, and um, and all the rest that you said. Thank you. And um, we'll have another question for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Kenneth Rosenzweig. Dr. Rosenzweig is Professor and Chair, Department of Radiation Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, System Chair, Mount Sinai Health System. And Dr. Rosenzweig is going to address the role of radiation oncology, different types of radiation treatments, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenzweig. Thank you very much, Carolyn, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Uh, so like Carolyn mentioned, I'm a radiation oncologist. So this is using radiation uh, to treat cancer. So we have our radiation machines, which aim the radiation beam at the tumor in an effort to kill the tumor and help, uh, help the patient out. So it can be a little confusing how we use radiation, and we use it slightly differently in different settings depending on what's best for the patient at that time. Uh, so like Dr. Pack was talking about a little bit earlier, um, if you have a small lung cancer or stage one lung cancer, uh, the best way to treat that is with surgery. You know, Just cut the tumor out, um, be done with it, and, and get on uh, with your life, yeah, there might be a role for some chemotherapy afterwards. Uh, but there are some people uh, who aren't able to tolerate a surgery. Uh, the tumor might be in a difficult place to operate, or uh, they might already have some trouble breathing, in which case doing a, a major surgery, like a thoracic surgery, might be a little bit too risky. So in these situations, we can give a very focused radiation at the tumor. Uh, we call it excuse me, stereotactic body radiation therapy. Uh, some doctors call it stereotactic ablative body radiation. Uh, so both terms are, are equivalent. Um, you might see either one out there. And with this, we do you know a couple of treatments, you know, three, four, or five treatments aimed at the tumor. Um, very intense treatments. Uh, each treatment takes about an hour. The doctor is standing there to make sure uh, that the treatment's accurate. We get a lot of pictures ahead of time to make sure we're aiming at the tumor correctly. And uh, this treatment has been extremely effective in treating early-stage lung cancer, uh, with some results being as good as surgery, although we do typically prefer surgery if possible because you get a lot of information about the tumor and can make sure that the tumor isn't in the lymph nodes or anything. Uh, but again, for situations where surgery isn't an option, uh, we've been recommending uh, stereotactic radiation um, as an excellent treatment of uh, the lung cancer. And it's really you know, fantastic to think that uh, someone can have an early-stage lung cancer and come in for three or four visits an hour each and be cured of their lung cancer and, and not have to uh, do anything else for that. And we've certainly seen that. I, I even once had a patient who came in on her lunch break since she uh, she worked fairly close to uh, uh, the clinic where we were treating her. So that's a pretty phenomenal thing. And, and she didn't even have to take a day off from work to, to get her cancer treatment. Uh, for situations where the tumor is more advanced, um, like Dr. Pack was talking stage 3 cancer, we're unable to do these very, very intense treatments because some of the normal tissue would receive too high of a dose of radiation each day. So these, this is a situation where we typically break up the radiation over about six weeks and usually give it at the same time as chemotherapy. Um, so this is kind of the classic uh, fractionated radiation therapy. And, and typically when you've heard of maybe a friend or a relative who's who's received radiation over the course of a month, this is very similar to, to that situation they might have had. Um, because these, uh, we're using this technique when we're treating people with more advanced disease, there are more normal structures uh, within the treatment area, so especially um, the esophagus, which is the food pipe where when you swallow, it goes from the mouth to the stomach uh, through the esophagus. So that can get very sore almost like a sunburn on the inside. 
And so as you might imagine, eating you know very hard, uh, sharp food like a toasted bagel is going to hurt a lot trying to swallow. So people need to eat softer foods, uh, chew the food really well. Uh, but sometimes it's so bad even drinking water can hurt, and we really have to give patients uh, significant medicines to help them get the food down because we don't want people to lose too much weight uh, during during the treatment or else it makes more treatment uh difficult to tolerate and you need the nutrition to help your body heal itself from the radiation and from the other therapies uh, you're getting. Uh, There are some new types of radiation uh, that we're using. Uh, So there are some situations where the tumor has spread outside of the lung, but only to a few areas. Um, So this has a, a special term called oligometastatic disease, oligo meaning a few in number. So it might be a situation where someone has a tumor in their lung, but just one spot outside of the lung or one spot in a different organ, in the brain, and the adrenal gland. And there have been a number of trials where we treat the tumor in the lung and then give a very focused treatment, uh, again, a stereotactic treatment to that spot outside of the lung and we've gotten very good results with that. And so there have been a, there are a number of trials uh, that have been reported that show um, much better than expected results with this approach. And, um, and there are a number of trials under investigation trying to, uh, to figure out you know, exactly how to, how to use this uh, uh, treatment. Uh, so that's been very exciting. And so there are situations where someone with metastatic disease might get you know, very um, high doses of radiation, which is not something we had typically done before. Usually once the disease had spread outside of the lung, we're really just trying to help people with any symptoms they might have from the tumor. And then just in the last little bit, I want to talk about another completely uh, new type of radiation called proton radiation. So protons are a type of radiation, but they travel in a very uh, specific characteristic way where they deliver all the radiation in just one spot and not to any other areas of the body. So this has been particularly effective in children with cancer because you don't want to give radiation to a child who might live for another 50 years and develop a second cancer or it might affect their growth. But there are some situations where this is very helpful in lung cancer, particularly uh, people who have received radiation before and some of the organs might have received their uh, maximum dose of radiation. Uh, So there are about 25 proton centers um, open uh, throughout the country. So not every region has one, but there's usually one uh, fairly nearby. Uh, There's one we're building here in New York that will be open uh, uh, early uh, next year. So that's another uh, new exciting program we're going to have for people with lung cancer. It's very specific who might benefit from that, but it's going to be another tool Uh, that we can use to help fight this disease. And thank you very much for your attention. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Rosenstock. That was really wonderful and um, a lot of excellent information about the role of radiation oncology and how important it is in the treatment for lung cancer. So thank you. Um, And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Alicia Gilmore. Ms. Gilmore is Faculty Associate Clinical Nutrition, University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. And Ms. Gilmore is going to present nutrition and hydration concerns and tips, um, a very important area for people, and I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Gilmore. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm really excited to be part of today's presentation, I'm talking about nutrition um, in patients with lung cancer. Uh, as Dr. Uh, Rosenberg was, uh, talk, was speaking about the importance of nutrition, it is so important during your treatment to make sure that you're getting enough nutrition and hydration to be able to do the things that you want to do. It's possible that your diet may need to be modified during or after cancer treatment to um, assist with the management of side effects. Side effects can vary, of course, depending on the kind of treatment you're receiving. Um, however, some of the most common ones uh, my patients talk about are, are dry mouth, difficulty swallowing, changes in taste, decreased appetite, nausea, and fatigue. During your treatment, it's possible that your nutrition needs may increase, and this may change. Um, this may require a change in your diet or in the kinds of foods that you eat. If you're having difficulty meeting your nutritional needs, it may um, affect your treatment and may cause a delay in your treatment. 
Um, if you have access to a dietitian, they can provide you calorie, protein, and your fluid goals, as well as um, strategies needed to meet them. Even if you're overweight, um, you can become malnourished. When your nutritional needs aren't met, um, your body will use your muscles uh, for energy, which can, of course, you know, is not an effective way for your body to work. So it, it can make you feel more tired. Um, it can decrease your endurance. Um, it may impact how the uh, treatment is working for you. Uh, there's medications that can be used to assist with side effects and pain, as uh, Dr. Lee was talking about. So really you want to make sure you let your health care team know uh, what's going on and how you're feeling. And the sooner that you can do it, the better. Um, like you said, you don't, we, we don't give out medals for people who uh, try and grit and bear it. Uh, we want to be able to help you. So if you're experiencing side effects um, when you're eating, sometimes it's helpful to, to keep a food journal about what you're eating and, and what symptoms you're having. And then um, a dietitian or a healthcare provider can use this information to help you manage your side effects. If you notice that you know, you're losing weight, a food journal can also be used to identify how much you're eating, what kinds of foods. And then um, you can you know, sit down with your healthcare provider and brainstorm uh, ways to help meet your needs using that. Dehydration, um, it can just it can make you feel tired, it can increase your nausea, it can also, you know, affect your balance. Uh to prevent or, or combat this, it's really important to make sure you're drinking enough fluids. Fluids are, are anything that, you know, of course are, are liquid, usually non caffeinated fluids are better. So things like water, juice, lemonade, powerade, gatorade, sports drinks, things like that, uh can be used to help meet your needs. Um, an overall guideline is about 8 to 10 cups of fluid most days. Sometimes um, treatments like radiation or chemotherapies can sometimes increase your needs for these fluids. So you want to make sure that you talk to your healthcare team about what's specific to you. If you are having difficulty swallowing from the treatment, um, it's possible that you may need to meet with a speech uh, therapist. They can, they can assess your swallowing process, determine if your um, food texture needs to be changed, um, and also talk to you about exercises and stretches that can maintain your swallow function. Um, it's possible that your swallowing can be changed during your treatment. If you struggle with tolerating food by mouth or continue to have difficulty swallowing, your team may talk to you about other nutritional support options, which may include a feeding tube. Um, it can be short-term. It can be long-term. It just depends on um, what, you know, is important to, um, you know, to meet your nutrition and fluid needs. So, once again, continue to let your team know how you're doing. Um, in closing, adequate nutrition hydration, really, it can help you do better. It can keep you on track with your treatment so there's not any treatment breaks, as well as just give you the energy that you need to do the things that you want to do. If you're having challenges, let your healthcare team know what's going on so they can help you be as strong as you can be. Um, know your team, know how to reach out to them, and the sooner you reach out to them, the better. Thank you for allowing me to be part of this workshop. I'll pass it back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Gilmore. That was really wonderful and very comprehensive um, and really a lot of important points. So thank you. And everyone, I hope you're all listening because it's really important. I should mention also that these programs occur in real time right now, but they also are archived on our website, and you can listen to them any time of the day or night. Usually it takes two days for them to get up on the website, so give it two days, and it'll be up on the website, um, and um, and you can listen to it or all the other previous programs we've done as well. And there's also a telephone replay as well. So I want to say a few words of, about cancer care before we take questions. So please make notes about your questions, and then we will we'll take questions very soon. Um, I just want to say that Cancer Care is a national organization. Um, we provide free services to people throughout the United States. And we do have a number of people who call us from other countries as well, and we provide some of the, many of the services to them as well. Um, however, we are basically, uh, majority of people who call us are from the United States. And we provide, um, for people in the United States, we do provide um, financial assistance with some of our costs of care. Um, and then all the other services are available to everybody throughout the world. We provide practical assistance to people, helping them connect up with resources they might need. Um, you can imagine when you're diagnosed with lung cancer, all the questions you have, you all know the questions you may have, or think about questions that you need help with, um, both emotionally and socially and practically. Um, so some people, um, really, we have a staff of many oncology social workers here, um, and they are professionally trained to talk to you about your concerns. And um, so you um, may want to just have someone to talk to to get what we call counseling services, but really is 
someone to talk to who really listens to you and listens to your concerns and helps you to think them through um, from anything on how do I talk to my children about myelin cancer, my grandchildren, how do I think about it myself, um, how do I talk to my friends and family, do I talk to them, how do I share with them this information. Um, um, so one of my questions for my doctor, so many questions that people have. Um, we also um, not only talk to people individually on the phone um, and online, we also have um, telephone and online support groups. Some people really appreciate being in a group of others um, who are walking in the same shoes, and we offer those programs both on the telephone or um, so telephone is real time, um, and um, online the online groups are actually you can post any time of the day or night anywhere in the world, and you can get that kind of support. Everybody is first talks to one of our staff or, or interacts with them online um, to see if the group is a good fit for them. And um, we have a lot of lung cancer groups, um, groups also for caregivers, for young adults who are caregivers, for older adults, um, so um, in lots of every different type of cancer as well because we do serve all cancers here. Um, we also offer these workshops. We do a lot of workshops on, on lung cancer and many other cancers, as well as coping with treatment side effects, survivorship, many other topics as well. And we do have a number of publications that um, often come out of these programs as well. So that gives you a quick thumbnail sketch of the services you can access, and you can get those services by calling us at Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. ORG, and you'll be getting all that information when you get your evaluation form. You'll be getting all of the feedback, um, um, any any resources that we've given you um, when you registered for the program, as well as resources we may have mentioned during the call itself. You'll be having access to those as well. So with all that being said, we now do have time for questions. I'm going to ask Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board, and I'm going to ask Crystal to explain to you how to queue up for questions. And let's see how many of your questions you can take. If we don't get your questions, I will then at the very end wrap it up and say a few words about how to get your questions answered if they haven't been so far. Okay, Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Jeff V. Your line is open. Hi. Um, my wife has uh, breast cancer, which has metastasized to her lungs. So by definition, it's, it's stage 4 cancer. And my question is, um, all the different um, things you talked about with immunotherapy and all that, um, does it apply to someone in that situation or someone who their, their first cancer is, is lung cancer only, unlike my wife who it's, it's a second cancer, if you will? Well, thank you. That's an excellent question. I think it's a question that many people on the call have. Dr. Pat, could you address that question? And again, in a general way, and then of course we'll invite you, hopefully with the information you get, to go back to your healthcare team with more more questions to ask about that. But Dr. Pat, could you start that off? Yeah, sure. So it's a important question to ask in the context, I think, of all of the activity that's there, because. Uh, it can be very confusing. You hear about the experiences of some folks who have one particular cancer, and I think that engenders a lot of hope and expectation that this might be the case for a different cancer. And I, I can say that um, in terms of lung cancer, uh, this is, along with melanoma, um, one of the two cancers that's seen the most activity and the most effectiveness when it comes to immunotherapy for reasons that we don't completely understand. Some of this is linked, we know, to the inherent biology of these cancers. Um, and it's been great for our lung cancer patients, but at the same time, uh, we haven't had much success in other kinds of cancers. And breast cancer is one of the areas where there's been some activity with uh, these immunotherapy drugs, but not as much as we've seen in other malignancies like melanoma and lung cancer. Uh, it is important as a result to, to talk about uh, these potential options, particularly in the format of clinical trials, because as far as I'm aware, there has not yet been an FDA approval indication for any of these immunotherapy drugs in breast cancer uh, to talk about that with um, the uh, oncologist who's taking care of uh, your wife uh, about what the options might be here or in other clinical academic centers. 
Excellent. And if I could just chime in for a second. Yes, please. Yes. Uh, this is Dr. Rosenzweig. Um, we sometimes use radiation uh, if the for a tumor in the lung if the original source of the tumor was not the lung. Um, so, for example, if there's a sarcoma that has spread to the lung and it, it and uh, it's been resistant to other treatments, we can sometimes give some very focused radiation, which is uh, identical to the stereotactic treatment I was talking about uh, previously. But it really needs to fit in with, with the overall treatment plan uh, that the oncologist and perhaps the surgeon are developing. And, and just because we can treat a tumor technically doesn't always mean it's the best option at that time. Uh, but for, from some, in some ways, unlike the chemotherapy, the radiation's a little bit blind to what the underlying histology is, whether it's originally a breast cancer, a prostate cancer, or a lung cancer, and it, it does treat them all kind of the same way. And um, I should say that we did a number of programs on breast cancer in the month of October. They're all on our website, and we did some programs on metastatic breast cancer, so that might be helpful to you um, if you go to our website, and you can actually, we'll be giving that information at the end in terms of how you get to the, the website, all about the website, but it has the telephone workshops there, and you'd be able to, um, the education workshops there, and you'll be able to kind of um, access those programs just to see if that, you get some additional information. And Dr. Lee, do you want anything, or do you want to? Hi. So yes, this is uh, Bob Lee. So I also uh, concur um, uh, with Dr. Rosenzweig and Dr. Pike have uh, uh, said. I just add one. I'll just add one thing. If there is um, a tissue uh, biopsy of the tumor, I would also study the genetics through uh, next generation sequencing because uh, there are some new therapies becoming available. Uh, for certain subsets, molecular subsets of breast cancers that are highly effective. Um, so knowing, uh, uh, checking this box and, and, and finding this out first uh, might be potentially useful uh, down the track. Thank you for saying that. And actually that, that was brought up in those programs. I definitely would encourage our speaker to really talk closely with your physician about that as well. Um, Okay, thank you. These are great questions and, and wonderful uh, speakers as well. And our next question, uh, Crystal, from Telephone Participant. Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Thank you so much, Dr. Carol. I guess this is excellent seminar as usual. I'd like to find out two questions. The first question I have, I'm a nurse, social worker, and a breast cancer survivor. But my question is, did HER2 lung cancer, is that similar to the HER2 breast cancer that you talked about? If it's just, you said you talked about that before, and the second question I have is on pain medications for Dr. Lee. Uh, can cannabis oil or mar medical marijuana, not to smoke it, but as a vapor or as an oil for patients having pain for lung cancer? Um, thank you so much. Okay, well, thank, thank you, Stephanie. Um, uh, Doctor um, Pack, do you want to take the first question? The HER2 lung cancer. I'm actually going to uh, put that over to Dr. Lee. You could not get a better oncologist to talk about this. It's his field of expertise, actually. HER2 uh, altered right. lung cancer. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Lee. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, HER2 her uh, amplification uh, is about 20% of breast cancers. And that's known as, as a known genetic driver of breast cancer. And, and her two targeted therapies have already transformed the care of uh, many women uh, with this disease. Now, her two, there's no, there's no approved therapy for her two in lung cancer. We, through the, the use of uh, genetic sequencing, we now understand that her two uh, amplification uh, and also another type of alteration called her two mutation occur about 2% each, and they're largely different uh, populations and different targets. So you, we have 2% HER2 amplified uh, in lung cancer and 2% in, in uh, HER2 mutant in lung cancer. So it's about 4% that are driven by HER2. Uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we uh, uh, have been conducting uh, clinical trials uh, testing uh, these new breast cancer therapies in 
patients with lung cancers driven by HER2, and we are seeing some preliminary activity that are promising. Uh, for example, uh, TDM1, uh, which is FDA approved in HER2 positive breast cancer, and that's HER2 amplified. We tested in patients with both amplified and mutant lung cancers, and we have seen some encouraging activity. So the uh, response rate of 44% is mirroring what we see in breast cancer, although the duration of response is much shorter, and perhaps lung cancer is still a different disease, less chemosensitive to breast cancer, and that's in her to mutant uh, lung cancer. And in her to amplified lung cancer, we are also seeing some results, and that, that was presented earlier, a few months ago at ASCO this, this year, um, as some preliminary efficacy using this drug. But I would say that they are still, it's the same gene and the same, uh, and sometimes the same gene alterations, but because they occur in different diseases, in breast cancer and lung cancer, there are still contextual differences and that may actually provide differences in therapeutic outcomes. But nevertheless, um, uh, we are conducting so-called so basket trials that, that we are actually putting different disease groups into the same basket um, labeled by the molecular drivers and seeing some promising results. And we hope that further research will uncover more and new drugs in this space can help more patients with HER2-driven lung cancers. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lee. That was wonderful. Thank you. And um, there's a second part to her question about um, pain management, and um, I wonder if you could address that as well. Yeah, so the uh, the question on uh, about cannabis uh, oil. Now, I think this needs to be um, uh, subjected to clinical trials to provide uh, uh, scientific data. Uh, there are some a lot of anecdotal claims and lots of things on the internet, um, and uh, at the moment they are not uh, considered uh, standard practice. That's sort of evidence based to to treat cancer pain. However, I don't. I certainly uh, keep an open mind and uh, would welcome any additional uh, therapies that could eliminate cancer pain. And uh, I think uh, medical marijuana should be tested in the same fashion as any other new drug discoveries uh, ought to be, and hopefully incorporated into practice guidelines through an evidence-based approach. In New York State, we have. Um, uh, certain uh, practitioners who are credentialed to prescribe medical marijuana. I myself am not, and I have not uh, had personal experience uh, doing this. However, I do want to see clinical data uh, to, to perhaps uh, uh, use this as an additional tool in the armamentarium against uh, cancer pain. Cannabis oil itself has not uh, been subjected to that process yet, and I uh, look forward to seeing more data and more research in, in this aspect. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, thank you. And our, our next question. Um. Thank you. Our next question comes from Mary T. Your line is open. Hello. Hi, Hi Mary. Mary. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to know, is there anything on the horizon um, for TKI-resistant drugs? I am EGFR positive. I'm on Tegriso, and uh, my cancer is stable now, but down the road, I understand that it does have the capability of not working, and is chemo the only option I would have after that? Thank you for that excellent question. Um, Dr. Dr. Pack, do you want to address that? Or? Yeah, sure. So uh, there is... A great deal of uh, research going on still in pay for patients who have EGFR lung cancer, and uh, it's great to hear that you're on Tegriso, and I hope that continues to last for a very, 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 very long time. Uh, we are sort of just in the beginning because of the recent approval indication uh, for Tegriso in the first-line setting of figuring out what it is the resistance uh, panel looks like for 
for patients who are treated in the upfront setting with this drug. We already have some initial results that were presented earlier this year by colleagues that have shown that the spectrum of alterations that arise are very different from what we're used to. And so we're having to sort of reset and recalibrate uh, our focus and our clinical trial work. I can tell you uh, that um, in terms of uh, what we're used to, which is finding a single resistance alteration that happens in the majority of patients. This was in the era of the first generation EGFR-TKIs. That really hasn't emerged. Uh, there are a handful of targets that happen relatively commonly. One of these happened to be alterations in a gene called MET, probably in about 15% of patients. There are these tertiary mutations that happen in EGFR in about 7 to 10% of patients, C797S is one of these things. Um, for which we think we can target actually using a first-generation drug. And then, again, a whole host of other alterations uh, that we do think we can target, actually, uh, with drugs that are in development or even drugs that are approved. Uh, but we have to sort of get our wherewithal together to be able to do this in the context of trials. I think uh, if you ever do get at the point where we need to figure out what's going on, then certainly a biopsy um, of the tumor or a liquid biopsy is the thing that will help us the most, uh, and then trying to figure out, taking a look at those results, what we might be able to do, what we might be able to do to pair uh, you with a different targeted therapy really uh, is still uh, the option. Uh, chemo is the standard option uh, that's there for folks. Immunotherapy, as you may or may not know, does not work terribly well in patients who have EGFR mutant lung cancer. And it's been a little bit disappointing, but uh, I think at the same time and by turns, there is still a great deal of promise, I think, because uh, we're looking at other combinatorial therapies with immunotherapy that might be able to uh, get us some additional gains. And in fact, there was a recent trial readout for something called Empower 150 that combined a standard chemotherapy backbone that has a drug called bevacizumab in it uh, with immunotherapy, a drug called atezolizumab. And this seemed to work particularly well in patients who had EGFR mutant lung cancer, who had progressed on an EGFR TKI. And so I think we're at the beginning of trying to figure out some better treatment options that uh, incorporate immunotherapy. Um, and I think that might very well be a reality for our patients in a relatively short period of time. Awesome. Thank you. Anyone want to add anything or comprehensive? Thank you. Okay. And I have a question um, for Dr. Lee. Is liquid biopsy becoming a standard part of oncology discovery for lung cancer? Thank you. So uh, liquid biopsy is becoming a, a standard, although this is a constant evolution. So there are the only uh, FDA-approved assays in liquid biopsy are the single gene mutation uh, uh, tested for EGFR by digital PCR. So this is the uh, um, EGFR LA5AR, EGFR XR19, and there's an assay for T, uh, EGFR T790M, the Roche-Cobas assay. That's approved by the FDA. Next-generation sequencing assays are emerging as a new standard, and uh, uh, many of which have obtained just very recently uh, uh, regulatory approval through the New York State Department of Health. This is um, the state where I practice, and uh, but they yet they are they have they are not yet FDA approved, but they are certainly clinically available uh, for use. Um, so there's there's ample. Uh, retrospective data on its potential uh, benefit for patient care, yet uh, there, there's a paucity of prospective clinical trial data using liquid biopsy to actually demonstrate clinical benefit, clinical utility. So, uh, But this is work that's accelerating in the research realm. And in my practice, liquid biopsy uh, uh, is used uh, uh, on many patients through research protocols. And I certainly do hope to see that this translates into more patient benefit incorporated into practice guidelines uh, in the near future. Um, so I, I would say the sh that's the long answer. The short answer is uh, in certain uh, clinical circumstances, it is the standard of care. In others, it's becoming the standard of care. In, in advanced metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, but in other settings still in the research realm. This is a constant evolution, so do talk to your oncologist about liquid biopsy. 
Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And um, a question for Dr. Rosenzweig. Um, I have been diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer and have started chemotherapy. My aunt had lung cancer a few years ago, and I remember that they gave her radiation therapy to the brain soon after she had chemotherapy. She said it was called PCI. Should I have PCI? So again, if you could answer this in a general way. And um... uh, yeah, so PCI uh, stands for prophylactic cranial irradiation. Uh, so just so as the name apply, uh, implies, that this is situations where we give radiation uh, to the brain to prevent uh, a new brain metastasis. So this is done only in one specific situation, and this is for patients with uh, the other type of lung cancer called small cell lung cancer. Uh, so almost everything we've been talking about today is non-small cell lung cancer. So the names are kind of silly. So a small cell is called small cell because when they look under the microscope, the cells are small. And then we group all the other lung cancers together and call them non-small cell. Uh, so not the most ingenious naming system, and, and obviously there are some exceptions to, to, to that role. Uh, but small cell is treated a little bit differently than non-small cell lung cancer. So typically, uh, patients get chemotherapy. Uh, but it's very, very common in small cell lung cancer for the tumor to spread to the brain uh, with just a couple of cells that aren't visible on an MRI scan. And uh, they've done studies on, on people who have died from small cell lung cancer. And in, in the majority of patients, they saw small little deposits of uh, tumor in the brain that weren't visible on any imaging. So the technique developed to, uh, to give a low dose of radiation to the brain, even when we don't know that there's a cancer there, to prevent the cancer from ever showing up. Uh, so that, again, that's called prophylactic cranial irradiation. Uh, so we only do that for, for people with small cell lung cancer. Uh, there have been a couple of trials looking at it in patients with non-small cell lung cancer because we do know that, uh, unfortunately, uh, some patients with non-small cell, the tumor can spread to the brain. Uh, but it's never been shown to help people live longer, so we don't typically do it in uh, that situation. And, in fact, a paper came out just showing those results uh, just last month in one of the prominent uh, medical journals. So again, that's a little bit of the confusing aspect with lung cancer because of some of the uh, subtleties in the disease. Uh, two people with what seemed to be the identical situation uh, might get uh, different recommendations just because there are some uh, um, variances in, in what's going on with that particular person. Uh, so uh, the short answer is you probably uh, should not be getting PCI because it's, it's, it's likely that you have a uh, non-small cell. If, if you are dealing with a small cell lung cancer, that, that should be a discussion you have uh, down the road with your medical oncologist and, and perhaps a referral to a radiation oncologist. Excellent. Thank you. I actually want to thank all of our speakers. who have really been phenomenal. This has been an amazing call today, um, I have to say. Um, this is, um, I have to say, I, I just want to thank all of our speakers. I also want to thank all of you who've queued up either on the phone or online to ask these great questions. I mean, really, these are, um, you know, you, you, these, the Q&A is an important part of the program, and it actually allows you to then interact with our speakers and really ask questions that are of concern to you. Now, I know we could go on for most of the afternoon, but I realized we had said this would be an hour program, and so I want to um, just uh, briefly um, sum up that if you still have a question, of course, we encourage you to go back to your treating healthcare team. They are, of course, the best resource for you because they know you the best and they know you can take the information you've learned today and run it past your healthcare team. Some of you have actually even asked the team to listen to the podcast of the program, so you can do that as well. You know, but you can actually tell them the things that you remember that you think might be important maybe would help you to understand or ask more informed questions of your healthcare team. Some of the questions you asked today, some of you asked questions, those might be questions that you could then pose again to your healthcare team. 
Um, we also are partnering with uh, five different lung cancer organizations, and I would say that all of them, um, one of them, lungcancer.org, has a tremendous amount of information and resources on it, um, and I would encourage you to take advantage of using those, and we will be giving you all those resources to contact, in addition to the National Cancer Institute as well as a great resource. Um, um, and again, we will give you those numbers um, in, when you get the evaluation form. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with lung cancer, any type of cancer in your family, anybody else who has any concerns. You now are part of a really, uh, a, really a fairly large, um, not, just, not just cancer care, but all the organizations that we partner with, the lung-specific organizations, all the other organizations, um, all the other programs we offer, that you now have someone to contact either by phone or online um, to get um, you know, all the different services that I mentioned earlier. Um, we do have a part two to this program, and it's a part two to recognize the caregivers, um, practical tips for coping with your loved one's lung cancer on November 27th. Um, that's another Tuesday, next Tuesday actually, at uh, the same time. And uh, we encourage you to, some of you have registered for that already, but if you haven't, you might be interested. And uh, lastly, I do want to mention that we do have a meditation app. Um, and actually, I would definitely recommend that many people find that, you know, it's, you know, it's stressful having lung cancer and coping with it. And many people find that the meditation app that offers relaxation exercises, people find it very helpful to download and, and have it there at, at their disposal. So definitely um, take advantage of that. And um, there are many apps out there. I know Memorial Sloan Kettering has a number of different apps. Um, and uh, and um, so that's another, um, another resource for you as well, and, and all different topics. And so definitely take a look at those. They might be useful to you. And so lastly, I just want to thank you all for your participation today. I noticed we are entering a holiday season, which has its own particular um, challenges for everybody. And so um, we are doing that program on November 27th in recognition of the fact that people are, are kind of trying to deal with uh, their own their cancer experience and the holidays and everything else that goes on, So, and, and particularly for caregivers. But many of the people who are living with cancer also want to listen to the program because they themselves may be their own caregiver or they may want to interface more, understand what caregiving is like anyway. So you're welcome to participate. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.